Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. You know, learning about the Miller firm and some of the trial attorneys in this case, it was so interesting to me. You know, this, the book jacket paints Lee's battle as David versus Goliath, and certainly Lee is, is a David figure. But it feels like once the Miller firm gets involved, it's more like Goliath versus Goliath. These guys put a lot of resources into this case. Were you surprised by just how big a business and how well organized a business these kind of lawsuits are? Yeah, you know, I really was. I mean, I've covered, you know, news in corporate America for more than 25 years and followed litigation, but I really watched how the sausage was made, so to speak, in this case. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Carrie Gillum has covered Monsanto for years, first as a reporter for Reuters and then as the author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. She is now the research director for the nonprofit U.S. Right to Know, and her new book goes behind the scenes as trial lawyers face off with attorneys for Monsanto in a San Francisco courtroom. The book is called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. And she joins us today Today to discuss it. Carrie Gillum, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So, Carrie, your book starts with a man named Dwayne Johnson, better known as Lee Johnson. Who is he? Oh, gosh. Lee, Lee is a middle aged father of two, a guy who kind of had a rough upbringing, um, didn't graduate college, you know, had a really rough time of it, but finally found himself and his footing and uh, was managing to do a Really nice job taking care of his family, working as a groundskeeper for a school district in Northern California. And you, you introdu- we introduce you to Lee, and then you learn about an accident in which he was doused in this weed killer mm. uh, and came to uh, learn that he developed a, a really horrible type of cancer and that he was not going to live to see his boys grow up. Yeah, you say this this accident. I mean, this accident is is just almost shocking to read about in light of everything that follows. He was wearing um, protective gear for this weed killer, which not everybody who uses weed killer uses. Um, and it sounds like he just absolutely got drenched. Yeah, you know, he. I spent time with him. He walked me through the scene and, and told me how it all happened and, of course, testified to this at trial. But yeah, I mean, it was a, he was, you know, had a tank on the back of a truck, you know, he was doing this for large areas around the school district, and, and uh, the tank hose came undone, and it just, it was a fountain of this toxic chemical, and he dove in the middle of it to try to shut it off Oof. before, you know, washed down into a waterway, so he, he was soaked through and through. And, and one of the, the saddest parts of this is after he gets soaked, he doesn't immediately go home and take a shower. And it was interesting to hear about his logic in that. What made him decide to keep working that day? Well, you know, as he tells it, you know, this particular weed killer, Monsanto, has always been marketed uh, as particularly safe, safe for humans and pets. It's 
practically non-toxic. It's not anything you really need to worry about. So, you know, he had a job to do. He washed his, went back after he cleaned up the mess and washed his face and hands as best he could. But yeah, he didn't rush to go home and, and take a shower um, until that evening when his workday was done. And so then he's um, not that long after this. He ends up um, getting just a, a very, very bad skin condition. He ends up being diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He connected it to this accident. He called Monsanto to ask about exposure. What happened when he made those calls to the company? Yeah, well, <laughs> he didn't get any answers. You know, we, we see emails in which they received the call and they say that they're going to get somebody to, to call him back and they note down what he says has happened to him, but he never did hear back. And at that point, he was not sure, you know, but he was still trusting the company to tell him the truth, but he was really desperate to try to determine what caused this. He was still working at the time, you know, he was still spraying this weed killer and was trying to understand if he should do that or not. So he ended up hiring a lawyer. And an interesting part of this book is this was not a local firm by any means. What put him in contact with the Miller firm? So all this happened right around the time that the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, classified glyphosate, this weed-killing chemical, as a probable human carcinogen. Well, right after that happened, Law firms around the United States started advertising for clients, people who used this weed killer and had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And he saw one of those advertisements and he called this law firm in Virginia and, uh, you know, the rest, <laughs> you know, plays out. But uh, that's how he connected. You know, learning about the Miller firm and some of the trial attorneys in this case, it was so interesting to me. You know, this the book jacket paints Lee's battle as David versus Goliath, and certainly Lee is, is a David figure. But it feels like once the Miller firm gets involved, it's more like Goliath versus Goliath. These guys put a lot of resources into this case. Were you surprised by just how big a business and how well organized a business these kind of lawsuits are? Yeah, you know, I really was. I mean, I've covered, you know, news in corporate America for more than 25 years and followed litigation, but I really watched how the sausage was made, so to speak, in this case. And uh, yeah, it was very eye-opening. And the, there were many firms, the Miller firm was one of them. They'd never tried a pesticide case before, but had been involved in medical, you know, pharmaceutical and medical device um, issues. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very big business. They put a lot on the line. They leverage millions and millions of dollars to go after these cases. And, you know, if they win, it's, the bet pays off. If they don't, you know, they're out, they're out quite a lot of money. But it, it was very interesting to watch how the mass tort system works. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things um, in reading this book um, was learning about the effort that goes into getting the right documents in discovery to find out what Monsanto people are saying in emails to each other, at emails that people wouldn't normally get access to. And these lawyers, they had some really high-tech help with this. This was a machine called Crivella. How critical was Crivella to finding uh, what these lawyers would certainly characterize as the smoking gun? Well, they they do give a lot of credit to this firm, Crivella. It was started by a man named Art Crivella, and I found that fascinating as well. But it, it's a way to really electronically handle millions and millions of pages. Monsanto turned over more than 10 million pages of internal documents that they were forced to turn over by the court in discovery. And so what human could go through that, right? But mm -hmm. they put it into this database, and it's there's an algorithm that goes through and can identify you know, language in the documents that indicates deception or worry or anger or, and so they were able to really cull through and pull out really remarkable pieces of evidence um, about Monsanto hiding 
the dangers of its products. Yeah, I mean, these 10 million pages tucked within these are the documents that you end up calling the Monsanto Papers, and this is what your your book takes its name from. Some of the revelations in this were just so interesting. Um, some of the most interesting had to do with ghostwriting, and I know this is a very contentious term in this litigation, but what, what were these documents saying about ghostwriting at Monsanto? Yeah, I mean, and there were so many and so many different examples. But what it boils down to is using third-party authors. And so the scientists who did not work for Monsanto, their names would be listed as authors on papers that were submitted into the scientific literature and were given to regulators. And those papers talk about, you know, findings that glyphosate does not cause cancer, that it doesn't cause reproductive harm, that it's very, very safe. But the Monsanto scientists say that they, they talk amongst themselves, that they will ghostwrite these papers. And one in particular that was they used with the EPA for years, they celebrated internally. You can read the emails and they celebrate that they've spent three years writing and working on this paper and it's going to be their defense for glyphosate all over the world and they're going to celebrate. And they're all going to get polo shirts to kind of have a little, you know, team victory dance uh, for how how successfully they ghostwrote this very important paper. And, and one of these papers that you sort of went in depth on, it's even, it's published with something saying that Monsanto didn't review it. And these documents so, show so clearly that they did get a chance to review it before publication. Reading some of this, did it, did it make you question these scientific journals and, and some of these processes that scientists are engaging in? Well, that's for sure. And it really did open up, you know, a window into that world as well. I mean, the editor of one of these scientific journals, these supposedly independent organizations that are publishing important science, they were paying this editor $400 an hour as a consultant mm. um, that was not disclosed. But yes, you cite papers that, that said, at, you know, Monsanto scientists did not, no Monsanto scientists reviewed, you know, anything to do with this paper. And then you see internally that they were very involved and were arguing with the independent authors about, you know, what it would say and changing things and editing things. And, and they very specifically wanted these papers out there to rebut this finding by the international agency that glyphosate caused cancer. We're talking today to Carrie Gillum. Her new book is called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. And Carrie's book goes in depth on a man named Lee Johnson and his fight, but it also deals with um, all of the litigation that was swirling around this issue of whether Roundup causes cancer. And this was all sort of coming to a head in 2017, 2018. Carrie, one of the most fascinating parts of this book involved some of the lawyers attempting to get these documents, these Monsanto papers that they'd uncovered in discovery, they'd use the algorithms to, to find these references to things like ghostwriting. And they decided that rather than just use them for the court fight, they wanted to get them out to the public. Why was that so important to the lawyers? Well, when you talk to them, and they were divided about this, you know, some of them said, nope, we don't want to do that. It's going to upset the judge. We don't want to mess around with that. And, and the others, and specifically Brent Wisner, this man, uh, decided that this was an important public health issue and that people, he told me, people are using this product every day and they need to see what the company is saying internally. They need to know about the deception. He wanted the EPA, he wanted regulators around the world, lawmakers, consumers. He wanted these documents out and Monsanto didn't. 
And he took a very, we call it a risky plan. You know, uh, <laughs> That's the understatement of, <laughs> of his, his plan here. I mean, this was some high stakes poker, as you describe this. It really was. I mean, he he laid a trap, essentially a legal trap, uh, to try to entice Monsanto's attorneys to fall into it. And if they did, he was then going to exploit, exploit a loophole in the judge's protective order and release the documents. And uh, you see how it all played out uh, in the book. But it was very, it was a very dramatic and, and risky move, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that this could upset the judge. This ended up really upsetting <laughs> to the judge, <laughs> to the point that Brett Wisner gets kicked off this case. He almost got kicked off the case. Uh, there was some smart legal maneuvering that happened uh, there as well and uh, some, you know, back backroom dealing. But, um, you know, yeah, the judge was incensed, outraged, very upset. Now, I wanted to talk to you about one interesting thing related to this document release, and that is, best I can tell, you actually played a role in this release. You don't acknowledge that in the book. You write, quote, one journalist in particular had been pestering the Baumhedlin firm, this is Brent Wisner's firm, for months about these sealed documents. And this journalist goes on to um, help them break this story. Um, isn't that journalist you? It is me, and we do acknowledge it uh, in the back of the book, in the under the sourcing. So we're in the back of the book where I defined the sourcing materials and who said what and did what. There we talk about that I am that journalist, and this happened. But so why not? Was, why not just move into the first person for that part of the book? I mean, you you are a key part in this information being disseminated. We went around and around. The editors and I did. Can you switch without interrupting the narrative? Can you switch from a third party to a first person, and then do you switch? You know, it, it was a very delicate sort of storytelling technique and the editing. And we went round and round and tried many different versions. And we finally decided that we would definitely make it clear in the sourcing materials of the book, um, but that we didn't want to interrupt that flow. Because the book is really written like a narration, like a mm -hmm. narrative story, you, almost like fiction. And, and I didn't want to interrupt that to sort of raise my hand and say, hey, look at me <laughs> you know, in the, in the <laughs> middle of this chapter. This. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, I found myself wondering um, what was going through your mind when, you know, you this, this high stakes poker game, you guys kind of hit publish at like midnight on the night that this order expired. I might have that timing slightly wrong, but it was like the minute that you had permission to do this, you know, you, you hit publish. And then for these lawyers, there was really a backlash. At some point, were you feeling guilty about your role in this or did you feel that you did what you had to do. No, absolutely not. No guilt. I mean, this these documents, the public deserves to see the truth. And the truth is within these documents. And and the lawyers were within their their rights under the protective order enforced by the court to release those documents at 12.01 a.m. on August 1st of 2017. Uh, the judge confirmed that. He didn't like it. He mm -hmm. thought it was done in bad faith. He thought that they should have you know, discussed it more with Monsanto's lawyers. He thought they tricked Monsanto's lawyers. Um, but it wasn't an illegal move by any means. And these documents are very relevant to public health policy. So I thought I was doing a public service. And, you know, I've been spent 25 years digging up internal documents from EPA, USDA, FDA. And these simply add to, you know, the, the larger picture um, of, of how important this whole story is. And when you first published those Monsanto papers um, or, you know, your, your write-up of what you found within them, um, what kind of reaction did that get online? Oh, I mean, these the, the papers went, you know, around the world. I mean, the release of these papers just brought a spotlight on this case and on the, the legal efforts to hold Monsanto accountable for its deception. And, you know, 
for me, I mean, I think when you shine a light on wrongdoing, you know, that's, that's what do they say? The best disinfectant sunlight is the best, best disinfectant. Um, again, people need to know the truth. And for me, there's a line. You know, there's a question, does this cause cancer? And that's not for me to answer, mm-hmm. you know. But has the company been deceiving people? And that it clearly is answered in these documents and clearly was answered through the litigation and was answered even before. So, um, you know, both of those things are intertwined, but I do think that you have to understand there, there's a nuance there. So as to that question, um, we offered Bayer, uh, previously Monsanto, a St. Louis-based company until they were acquired by this this much bigger German company, uh, we offered them the opportunity to share a statement. And they sent us a pretty long statement. I'm going to read no. it. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, Carrie, I'll give you a chance to respond to, to what's in it. So let me try to read this entire thing. Um, first and foremost, they write, we have deep empathy for anyone fighting cancer and the impact it has on an individual's life and the lives of their loved ones. We continue to stand behind the safety of our glyphosate-based Roundup products. This view is also supported by leading health authorities and their independent findings in the United States, the European Union, and many other countries around the world. At Bayer, we welcome robust discussion about our products and we take seriously the views of people with different opinions. Carrie Gillum's views are well known both individually and on behalf of the advocacy group U.S. Right to Know, for which Ms. Gillum is director of research. In her latest book, Ms. Gillum tells a story reflecting her well-published point of view regarding the Johnson trial. Ms. Gillum has frequently criticized Monsanto and later Bayer and has also worked very closely with U.S. law firms bringing litigation against our company. While our views are quite different from Ms. Gillum's on the global need for modern agriculture, Bayer always welcomes feedback and continues to be driven by science to improve lives from our home in St. Louis and elsewhere around the world. So that's a mouthful, but Carrie Gillum, I'd I'd love your reaction to that. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, that's what they say. So uh, U.S. Right to Know is not an advocacy group. Uh, U.S. Right to Know is a research group. We file Freedom of Information Acts uh, requests with federal agencies and state information requests with universities and state agencies, and we gather documents that are relevant to public health policy, and we make them available online uh, for other journalists um, to use or lawmakers or whomever needs them. And uh, I write for The Guardian um, news outlet as well and wear several hats. But yes, my research uh, in terms of getting public documents and making them available to people is done through U.S. Right to Know. Um, what would you say we, to, to their allegation there that you coordinated with these law firms? Well, I, you know, what does that mean? I reported. Um, I did interviews with the lawyers. I did interviews. I did download documents as soon as they became available from one of the law firms. Uh, so did, you know, many other journalists. I think they were a little bit later to the game to do it, but mm-hmm. they also did it. Uh, I, I did reporting. You know, what are they going to say? It's noteworthy in there that they don't say that anything that in my reporting or in my books is wrong. Um, <laughs> they, they've never been able to do that, and they still don't do it. Um, what they try to say is that I have a point of view or, you know, something like that. And, and I do. My point of view is that the company is engaged in 40 years of deceptive tactics, um, illustrated and proven by their own words and their own documents. Um, as to, as I said earlier, as to the carcinogenicity of their products, that's something I leave to scientists or juries or regulators or whomever to figure out. Yeah, and let's talk about that jury. I want to bring it back to Lee Johnson. His jury came back with an absolutely huge verdict. I mean, this is $289 million. Um, what would you attribute that to? 
Well, the jurors that I interviewed um, told me, you know, it was a combination of the science, uh, a, a very big part of the trial, which ran about six weeks, was a presentation of various scientific studies, epidemiology studies, toxicology, in, in vitro laboratory studies, showing associations between glyphosate-based uh, herbicides like Roundup and cancer. So they said they were very um, um, swayed by the scientific evidence. They were also outraged and angered by the evidence of deceptive tactics of Monsanto's efforts to manipulate the scientific record and to manipulate and influence um, agencies like the EPA. There are mm -hmm. documents that show Monsanto actively trying to work to squash independent agency regulatory reviews of its, and, and they talk about how worried they are that they don't want, you know, these agencies to look at the science surrounding their chemicals, and, and they work their political connections to keep that from happening, and that's all in the document. So when the jury looks at all of that, they said, yeah, we're, we're very upset about this, and all three trials had the same result. All three juries and all three trials held to date found outrageous conduct by Monsanto, and the last jury came up with a $2 billion punitive damages award. They were so upset by it. It's interesting. This jury was not an anomaly. You know, this has been repeated, as you say, by, by these other two juries. But the, the judge in Lee's case, she had a different take. She said she saw no evidence of malice or that Monsanto acted despicably. What do you think was the difference between her and the jury? They all heard the same evidence there. Yeah, you know, I don't know. And that, I mean, because I did not get a chance to interview the judge. I don't know mm -hmm. that. She initially looked like she might go along with Monsanto's request to re reverse the verdict. She did not. She kept it intact, although, um, you know, she she moved to reduce it. But, you know, it's important to know that Bear, Monsanto and Bear appealed these verdicts. Mm -hmm. And the appellate courts all upheld the verdicts. They all found that, yes, these jury verdicts were valid. And um, so Monsanto has, Bear has paid Lee now his money finally, and uh, they are working to settle the rest of the litigation. They don't want to go to trial anymore. They're looking to pay $11 billion to try to settle this litigation now. And, and in terms of paying Lee, it was kind of sad. I mean, it was such a, a Cinderella moment there, not just that he won this huge verdict, this this David in, in your telling and this David and Goliath battle, but this attorney, Brett Wisner, uh, who's the one who, who released these Monsanto papers through a, almost an amazing turn of events, he ends up being the guy who wins this at trial. I mean, you almost have to, to see what happens that leads to him getting to, to run this trial to believe it. Um, so it's this almost high moment in the book. And then this award just gets, keeps getting chipped away at. How much money was Lee actually able to get in order to settle this thing with, with Bayer? Yeah, it went from $289 million to his final award was $20.5 million mm. plus interest. But the, the thing that is so just sort of surreally crazy about that is under California law, if you're expected to die very soon, you're terminal, you're not going to suffer a long time, and so you're, you're not due as much money, according to the courts. And so because he was expected to die very quickly, they didn't expect him to suffer very long, and that was one of the reasons that the appellate court reduced his verdict so substantially. Yeah, as you say, that is a that is a weird, weird twist in the law there. And what's what's I, I, it's kind of a bittersweet thing is they did not expect Lee to live that long. They moved up his trial to 2018. They weren't sure if he would last another year. Um, at the time that this book was published, he's still alive. Is, does he continue to to hang in there today? He does, and I. I 
I, you know, I thought with when I told my editor when I was writing this book, I fully thought that my final chapter would be his funeral. He has suffered so incredibly, and I've spent time with him, and I cried at one point. It was just he was in so much pain. It was just horrendous, the things he's gone through. But at one point during this whole period, he said to me, I've just decided I'm not going to die. I want to be here for my boys. I want to watch them grow up. He didn't get to be with his father when he was growing up. He, he, his father was absent, and he doesn't want to be absent for his boys. And he, he said, it doesn't matter how much I suffer. It doesn't have much pain. I'm just not going to die. So... <laughs> So far, that seems to be working for him. I, I, I don't know. And what how to say does other than that. how does he feel about twenty million dollars versus the two hundred and eighty nine million that, that the jury wanted to give him? Oh my goodness, I don't know if I should characterize it. Um, you know, he doesn't, of course, get twenty million dollars. I mean, the that's lawyers a great get point. A very, yeah, the lawyers get a very big piece of that. Taxes take a very big piece of that. One thing people don't understand is that if you have Medicare or Medicaid, if there's any sort of insurance uh, that's been paid out for medical bills, you oftentimes have to use your your settlements or your money from litigation to pay back medical bills that insurance is covered. Mm. So, you know, he's he's certainly not walking away with the money that I guess he thought that he was going to after that jury verdict. Mm. And it sounds like that's that's been some disappointment for him. It's definitely been disappointing for him, but, you know, he's he's never been about the money. Lee's always been about he wants to be there for his boys. I mean, that's mm. been the main message from him all along, and he's so happy that he still is hanging in there with them. Carrie, bigger picture, do you think Bayer Monsanto um, has learned a lesson from this verdict and, and these other verdicts that followed it? Certainly, you know, Bayer has been through the ringer. Bayer bought Monsanto right as the Lee Johnson trial was beginning, and when the verdict came down on August 10, 2018, the share price in Bayer plummeted. Uh, they've been sued by their investors. They, there's been the, the head of Bayer. They wanted him ousted. You know, it's been quite a bit of turmoil for the company. And their, their revenues, their, everything has been rocked by this uh, liability that they assumed. Um, and no one can really understand how they missed this freight train that was headed their way. Um, but, you know, as I said, they're trying to settle the cases now. They're starting to talk about maybe putting some sort of language on the label of these products to indicate the science that shows, you know, connections to cancer. Um, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And, and I do have to say, you know, the evidence that's out there so far anyway indicates that they are a bit more above board than Monsanto was. Hmm. Under their new corporate a, owners. It was a low bar. I don't know. <laughs> but, um. Carrie, just last question here in our final 30 seconds or so. Um, I know your background is more science than law. Did you come away thinking jury trials are a good way to get to the truth of a situation? Well, I think what I write in my book and where, where I sit on this is it's a really imperfect system and it's not the best way that we should be protecting our consumers from, you know, public health dangers, from defective products. We need better regulations, we need stronger laws, we need, you know, our government to be protecting people. We don't, we shouldn't be relying on mass tort attorneys. Uh, to do this for us. But right now, it's it's really the only way out there to hold companies accountable. Well, Carrie Gillum, I want to thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing all about this fascinating book. Thank you for having me. And Carrie's book, again, is The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. We'll have a link to that on our website. 
This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.